Welcome to Many Happy Returns, where we aim to make you a better investor. I'm Roman. And I'm Michael. Since starting PensionCraft, I've spoken to more than a thousand people about their finances, helping them with their investing goals, strategies, and fears. It's striking how many people struggle with the same stumbling blocks. I want to understand the common challenges investors face and how they chart the right course. And in today's dumb question of the week, why is it so hard to talk about money? Okay, let's get into it. A thousand people, Roman. That's a lot of people to talk to about money. You must have heard everything by now, I imagine. I'm not often surprised, put it that way. But what's interesting are the people themselves. That's what I absolutely love. They're very varied, particularly what they do. Their jobs are just so incredibly varied. Now, obviously, I'm not going to mention specific people. So if any of you are previous clients, don't worry. But everything from an actor to a musician from a band I'd never heard of because I'm just so old and out of touch, but which I'm sure many of you would have heard of. Yeah, I was going to say, you not hearing of them doesn't narrow it down. It's probably super famous. It's probably Bono or something. (laughs) People who work for investment banks, people who are economists, financial advisors. So everyone's coming to Roman. A golfer. A gopher? A golfer. A golfer. (laughs) (laughs) Now, one of the difficulties if you're a YouTuber, a financial YouTuber, is you sit in a room on your own. And you just have to generate content. And it's quite a lonely business. You are cut off from the rest of the world. And you live in this kind of financial bubble. You read the FT, of course, but you look at weird things and you understand weird things. And it makes you a bit weird. (laughs) (laughs) I feel you're a bit weird before you started a YouTube channel. I guess that's true. But (laughs) I think the other point is that when you do these one-to-one meetings, it's actually as if you've met that person. So from my point of view, it's brilliant because it is my social contact with the real world and it's how I gauge what I'm producing and whether that's in sync with what people need. So in terms of synchronization of content to demand for stuff and knowledge, it's really valuable. And in terms of human contact, it's even better because I love the interaction with people. I love that you phrased it in the most sort of Android way, though. I like human contact. (laughs) (laughs) So you like the humans. (laughs) (laughs) All right, I think we've gone off the rails early on. What I really want to know is, across all these different situations and professions and backgrounds and ages and whatever else, everyone's different. But do you see the same common themes coming up again and again? No question. You know, if there's one thing which is common to almost everybody, who comes to me, they often are in a situation where they've got a really complex set of investments. And that might be a wide range of platforms. They've used multiple platforms in the past, or perhaps they've got a financial advisor and they manage some of the stuff themselves. And yet when they speak to me, they realize I've just got one fund. That's it. Just one global stock fund, which seems really shocking. And I can understand why that's the case. And I didn't start off with one fund. I ended up with one fund because I wanted to simplify my life and also my investments. And I realized that complexity is probably your worst enemy when it comes to investing. And it's also a great anecdote, though, when you're talking to people and going, well, my portfolio is one fund. It's quite the shock factor to wheel that out, I'd have thought. But it always makes me laugh when people talk about this is how my portfolio is doing. And for me, it's very easy to say how my portfolio is going. I could just give them the ticker. 
I saw on YouTube a comment on your last live stream. Someone said, why is Roman never revealing what his investments are? I want to know how he's performing. I'm like, well, how are global stocks performing? <laughs> That'll tell you. Oh, that is funny. But I think the important thing about simplification is that it stops you from misbehaving as well. If you've only got one fund, there's not much that you can do wrong. You can put more in, you can take money out, although I don't do that. So that's it. There isn't a loss of uh, misbehaviour that could actually happen. But I don't imagine you're saying that everyone should just have one fund. You're saying that what you see is kind of a randomised way people are developing their investments. And then they're coming to you to look to prune it, maybe? Yeah, I mean, it's kind of like Occam's razor when you're talking about theories. You really want to have the simplest possible thing to achieve what you need to achieve. And in the case of a portfolio, that's the minimum number of funds. And of course, now that's quite easy. If you can have a global fund with stocks, global fund with bonds, and maybe a money market fund, that gives you a lot of leeway. Maybe throw in a commodity fund, maybe at the outside, something like a real estate fund. But I think, you know, two funds is probably enough for most people. And that was one of my first radical departures from standard theory, which is to say, yeah, you can do everything with just two funds. But the thing that makes this viable as a strategy is that, as we've discussed in the past, it's so hard to outperform a broad-based diversified stock market index fund. The vast majority of professional managers don't manage to do it on a consistent basis. So the people that are coming to you on power hours, are they needing convincing of that fact? Because you talk about it all the time, right? I thought they'd have already heard that from you. Or are they just looking for the sort of push <laughs> to get them to embrace it? Well, it's funny because some people say, you know, I've watched every video you've ever made. And I don't think I've watched every video I've ever <laughs> no. made. But, but people do say that. And then you think, OK, I just hope they don't start testing me on what I've said in the past. Because, you know, you kind of forget literally a couple of weeks afterwards. But then you've also got people who've watched very little of the content. And one of their friends said you should watch some of Roma's videos. And they just jump straight into a power hour or one of these coaching sessions. So if they're in the latter camp and they haven't watched our stuff, then yeah, it's a much harder situation, I think, because I have to explain all the stuff about Spiva, the S&P index versus active report, and show them the evidence that it's really hard to outperform markets. And when people come to you with these sprawling portfolios with maybe individual stocks and actively managed funds alongside tracker funds and all range of different assets, are there any themes you see about why people have chosen what they've chosen, even if they're now doubting themselves? Yeah, sometimes they've inherited a portfolio. So, for example, this could be something they received from their mother or their father, who was an active investor, and it's got you know hundreds of stocks, because that's the way people used to invest. They'd have a big stock portfolio and roughly earn market returns as a result. They wouldn't realise that, potentially. Yeah, you've built your own index fund by the back door. Exactly. And they don't realise that, but effectively that's what they've done. Or if they've been reading Share Magazine, for example, where they've got these kind of stock tips which come in there every week, then they'll have this huge list of stocks, which each time it's been a tip from this Share Magazine, they haven't got around to selling it yet. Maybe it's making a loss, in which case they don't want to sell it at a loss. And I think these Share Magazines have got a lot to answer for. And do you see people from different professions or backgrounds have similar portfolios to people they're similar to? Like, do all the doctors have a certain kind of portfolio? Yeah, often that's the case. So usually people buy what they're familiar with. 
if it's a doctor, they'll buy pharmaceutical stocks. Or there was one that was buying a real estate investment trust that would buy up medical practices and somehow consolidate them. So it'll be some kind of theme to do with their job. Tech people typically buy tech stocks, the NASDAQ index or individual tech stocks. And they'll say to me, look, I know this company inside and out. I use their products. I write software using their platform. I know everything about them. So it just makes sense for me to buy that. And I know what's going to happen to the stock price. Well, that better not be a cover story for insider trading, Roman. Well, you know, it's not illegal if you understand a company very well to trade off your knowledge. It's just if you've got material undisclosed information, that's a very different story. That is illegal. But no, that's not the story that they usually tell me. They just say, look, this is what I do. I understand the business. My problem with that, I guess, is twofold. That one, I'm not sure the understanding of the industry necessarily gives you an advantage. Maybe you're too close to the problem sometimes and you see things from your own biased point of view. If you're a doctor, maybe there's certain pharmaceutical companies you don't like for whatever reason, even though they're wildly profitable or whatever it might be. And also, perhaps you're doubling down your risk in your industry. If you're an estate agent and you're buying lots of REITs, you might lose your job at the time your REITs are going down. (laughs) I think both of those points are true. I think many people think they understand the technology, say, for a given tech company, and then they assume that that gives them some kind of insight into the business and what it's worth. And that's where it really falls down, I think, the argument, which is that I understand the tech so I can understand the value of the business and whether it's cheap or expensive relative to where it should be. But they're very different skills, understanding how to value a company and understanding how the company's business works. So even if a company is very dominant in its niche, you can still overpay for it and subsequently you'll underperform. Do the people you speak to typically overestimate or underestimate their abilities when it comes to investing? I'd say it's evenly split. Some of the people I speak to, they clearly think they can choose stocks, for example. And, you know, I have to be honest with them and tell them I don't think you can if you are honest with yourself. But if they want to have a go, you know, I always say have a fun portfolio and just try it and see whether you can consistently beat markets and be completely honest about scoring it. And it is fun to try. I try. I still try. But it's unlikely to succeed. Yeah, you've got to go into it with your eyes open, haven't you? You've got to know that all the evidence says I won't be able to do this. But maybe I will. Maybe. Someone's got to be able to do it. (laughs) Maybe it's different for us. Yeah. Yeah. But look, if people want to have a go, I think it's worth it because you learn so much when you're trying to beat the market about gathering information, which information is material when it comes to share prices. And there are a lot of surprising things. You know, you see a company which comes out with amazing earnings, but because it was below the forecast that many analysts had, it'll tank. The stock will tank, even though the profits were very good. Or perhaps it's just a sector which is unloved a stock which is fundamentally undervalued, in your opinion, might just be out of favour at the moment because that sector is just not popular. Financials, for example, at the moment, there are lots of great banks out there, great insurance companies, but because the sector's hated, it's just not performing very well. So I think all of these things really stand against you when you're trying to select single stocks, whether you're familiar with them or not. And really, I think it's a game that you're not going to win. The cards are just stacked against you. And do people typically go away from your conversations more convinced of that fact? Well, I never say that. I never say don't try. I say do try, but just be brutally honest and score yourself 
against a global index. And if they do that for a long period of time, they'll see the truth of what I'm saying. Or they'll become rich and buy many more power hours. (laughs) Which I'd be happy with as well, of course. (laughs) And I think that's the other thing which comes out of these meetings, which is almost always they say, firstly, I trust you because I've heard your YouTube videos and you're not trying to sell me anything. Of course, I'm trying to sell these power hours and membership, but you know that's not really trying to sell them a product. It's trying to make them better by learning about investment. And they appreciate that. They like the honesty. They like the fact that I'm not selling to them. Okay, so we've talked about how a lot of people get the kind of tactics wrong, perhaps, by picking single stocks or tilting their portfolio dramatically. But if we pull back a bit, what do they get wrong maybe in a more general fashion about how they go about investing? I think the big difference between professional money managers and people who just do it for themselves and haven't really got a background in investment is their attitude to risk and the way they control risk. And I think a lot of financial professionals as well, they get this wrong too. Because many people think that risk is something like, you know, will stocks crash if I buy them today? If I put all of my money into stock today, is it going to go down to 50% of its value tomorrow? That's what people think risk is. But in fact, I'd argue that risk is much more about not meeting your financial goals. Because the whole point of investing is to create some kind of lifestyle down the line, which is better than what you've got today. And that'll only happen if you can meet your financial goals. So really, investment is just a vehicle to get you from where you are today to where you want to be in the future. It's almost like engineering your own life in that sense. And risk is a part of that. And if you do certain behaviours, you're not going to achieve your goals. So really, it's about coaching people in the right behaviour. All the rest of it comes out of that. You know, the portfolio, how you respond to crashes, how you respond to crises. All of this stuff flows out of that risk, the fundamental risk, which is not reaching your goals, or even understanding what your goals are. A lot of people, they just put money into a fund and hope for the best. I've got this money, I put it into an S&P 500 fund, and that's it. Whereas really what you should be thinking is, what's my goal? What's the portfolio that's going to get me there? And how much volatility are you willing to stomach, I guess, along the way? Yeah, because some people just can't live with big crashes. Often I only find this out after they've already had a power hour with me where they say, no, I've got no problem with crashes, I wouldn't sell. I always assume that's their behaviour. But now I always ask them, if markets crash, obviously you wouldn't sell. That's the worst thing you can do. But then there is a crash. People come to me afterwards and they say, yeah, I sold. I knew I said I wouldn't, but I was really scared and I did. And I can completely understand it. I get tempted to do that too. But you've just got to resist the temptation to sell if there is a crash. People get too hung up on market crashes, don't they? I think their brain tells them that they're going to happen. They've happened in the past. They're going to happen in our investing lifetimes. But when they happen, the sell button looks mighty tempting. And what is weird about investment is that although markets are unpredictable over the short term, over the long term, they become more predictable, which is counterintuitive. And what also happens is that the things which are risky short term become safer long term. And here I'm talking about stocks. So if you're going to be investing for, say, 30 years, 
you can almost be certain that bonds will underperform stocks over that kind of period. In fact, I'd say you would be certain, as close to certain as you can be. So long term, what's less risky is to buy the volatile thing, stocks. Not single stocks, because those sometimes go bust, but a whole global index will not go bust. It will rise more than bonds over a long period of time. So I think explaining that and explaining these base rates about what you'd expect long term is incredibly important. So often what I talk about is this Credit Suisse Global Returns Yearbook, which talks about these 120-year returns by asset class, because that's what you get long term. If I had a t-shirt or a tattoo, that would be it. Can I suggest a hat? Hat would work. So by not necessarily understanding that, what mistakes are people commonly making? Are they holding too many bonds or too much cash for the long term? Or conversely, too many stocks for the short term? Both of those. You know, I see both examples. And, you know, you've got somebody who came out of a crash in 2020 and sold their stocks, understandably. It was scary. But then they didn't buy back in. And then, of course, markets started to tear upwards and they just got locked out of the market. And they kept on thinking, well, it's going to crash. It's going to crash. It's going to crash. It can't keep going up. Or there's somebody who has taken too much risk and bought into some kind of trend like growth stocks, for example, in 2020 and 2021, and now are nursing a loss of, say, 50 or 60%. So it can be either way. They can dial up their risk too much or buy into a particular trend or a theme and then get burnt and then stick with it because they don't want to realise the losses. Or it could be that they're just not taking enough risk to get to where they need to be. And in the first example there, the misbehaviour, I guess, was trying to time the market and think you can dance in and out and get a better return than the index. Which intuitively you'd have thought would be quite easy to do. If markets are going down, you sell, and then you just buy back at a lower price and ride it up. But you've got to make two correct decisions when you do that. And it's very difficult to time those. And I think the really hard thing is that the market almost always looks to be rallying prematurely. You're thinking, the world is still in lockdown here. (laughs) Why is it going up so much? I'm just going to wait till it comes back down. But then the world gets better and the stocks will prove right. Yeah, I love this quote we used to have when I used to work in investment banking, which is, if you lose money, it's God's way of showing you you're wrong. And yet people cling to these beliefs for a long time after. There's overwhelming evidence that things are kind of okay. It's often tempting to say things like, oh, this rally isn't fundamentally justified. I mean, I know we do that. right? We say this isn't fundamentally justified, but sometimes it just isn't. So these people that come to you because they got out of markets too early and it's hurting them or they got hurt in a crash, I imagine it's taken some toll on them psychologically and they're looking for a little arm around the shoulder. But I think kind of regardless of what happens in markets, it can be a stressful thing, right? Managing your money. And I think it's a sense of responsibility. Usually these are people with families. Often they've sold a business, which has been very successful, or they've got a business and they have what they call liquidity events, where some of their shares vest and they end up with, you know, a few million pounds, or if they've sold the business, it could be tens of millions of pounds. And really that's a huge responsibility for them as guardians of that money for their family. And you'd have thought at this point in life when Almost by any definition of success, they've ticked the boxes. You'd be thinking, well, you know, you'd be taking it easy, relaxing. You'd have a stress-free life. In fact, 
consistently, every single time I hear this, I'm really stressed by this money. I can't sleep at night. I think I'm going to get it wrong. I don't know what to buy. And if I do get it wrong, it'll be bad for the family. This is very, very consistent and kind of surprising. I think it's because people's lifestyle expectations rise when a big lump sum comes in. Like the family expects, okay, we're going to be living the high life now for the rest of our lives. That you really don't want to let them down, even though it's just money on a screen at the end of the day. And you're going to be fine, right? Just put some money in cash. I think that's true. That's true for some people. And yet you meet some people who have had these liquidity events and they do have huge excess cash. And yet they lead a very simple lifestyle. And yet they're still stressed by the investment side of it. And this is why I think wealth managers have a pretty good business, because they effectively offer you the ability to outsource this to someone else and you don't have to worry. They worry on your behalf. Yeah, that's the understanding. That's what people think they're doing when they hand over to a wealth manager. Whether that actually happens down the line may well not be the case. I sometimes wonder with these people who've suddenly come into a lot of money, if they haven't quite managed to shift their goals and their mindset in the right way. Because I imagine up to that point, if they were building a business or growing their personal wealth, they were very much like, I need high returns. I need to grow. Everything needs to go up. The graph must be going up. But now you've got loads of money. The game's different, right? Probably the game is, I don't want to lose this money. So it's more about preservation and therefore maybe things like bonds and cash and commodities and building this balanced portfolio comes more into the conversation. I think that's spot on. And it comes back to this point about goals, which is how much do you want? How much do you need for the lifestyle you want? And they don't have to take a lot of risk anymore. All you have to do really is beat inflation at that point. And once you've got your large pot, it's just a matter of not eroding it. Essentially, what you're running is an endowment for your family. You're effectively running your own family office. Yeah, because rationally, like if I had 100 million and I just needed a tiny fraction of that to live each year. When real rates got to almost 2%, you could just have banged it all into tips and have 2% of that guaranteed each year. And you don't need to take a lot of risk. And yet they still feel as if they have to be a stock operator or or, you know, some kind of uh, share investor at that point, when in fact, that kind of risk is really unnecessary. You don't even have to think about beating markets. Yeah. I'm not saying I would go completely risk off in that sort of mega wealth situation. I'm sure I would be greedy like everyone else. But, (laughs) you know, you could, right? It is a real option that you could just go super safe. And usually what people do is compare themselves with their peers. And if you hang out with millionaires, then there'll always be someone who's richer than you. So I think it's a matter of managing expectations and not judging yourself by comparing yourself with other people in the same peer group. And just think about what makes you happy. You know, what is it that really gives you that satisfaction in life when you get up in the morning and you feel comfortable? And in terms of that problem that with great wealth comes great responsibility and hence great stress, I would just sort of separate out what's in my control and what's not. So in my control is to not do stupid things and like lever up unnecessarily or take a really concentrated portfolio in a handful of stocks, which could go wrong. That's in my control. What's not in my control is the market returns and whether there's going to be a Great Depression or whatever. That's not in my control, so I won't worry about that. If that happens, I'll still be in a much better position than 99.9% of the population. I should have you on the power hours, Michael. I think that's a very good point. So what do you think is the value that people typically get out of a 
conversation with you because you're not a financial advisor. You're not telling them what to put money into. So what do they really want to get from you, do you think? Many of them have already had financial advice or currently have a financial advisor. So I think part of the problem is not understanding what they've got or what advice they've been given or not understanding the value of that advice, which is often very good advice. But if you don't understand it, you don't realise it's good advice or whether it's bad. So I think that's part of it. So you're kind of a sounding board for what they're thinking about doing and they're sense checking it with you. Yeah, that's often the case. And they'll just run a plan past me and just say, look, what are the problems with this? Or here's my portfolio. What do you think about it? And what's really interesting is if you look at the portfolio, what I can do now, I've done this so many times, is back out the view of the market, which is implied by the portfolio. And often you read it back to them and they just say, no, that's not what I think at all. (laughs) Yeah, I know. (laughs) So I think that's a really useful exercise because people don't often realise what their portfolio is assuming. And it's often not what they think. So give me an example of that then. How has someone diverged where they think one thing, but their portfolio is actually expressing a different view? A typical example in the UK is having too much in the UK stock market. So, for example, many people don't realise that the UK market's smaller than Apple. You know, the entire market cap of the UK is smaller than just one US stock, the largest one. So I think if they have, say, a 20% allocation for the UK, what they're assuming is that the UK is going to outperform, not just a little bit, but a lot, because that overweight is a six-fold overweight relative to market cap. And you can get that overweight quite accidentally by buying, for example, a Vanguard Life Strategy Fund. (laughs) I don't think you've chosen this example at random, have you? No. Uh, And that's often the case. You know, they show me their Life Strategy Fund or a Target Retirement Fund from Vanguard, and that's the assumption. Or they've got one of these pensions provided by one of the UK work-related pension schemes. And almost always what you see is a 30%, sometimes even a 60% UK allocation. And you just think, well, looking back in time, this is almost criminal because it's underperformed by so much for so long as a result of this crazy overweight. And you say to them, so, okay, looking at your portfolio, I can deduce that you think the UK is going to be the best performing country in the world and you like to make your pension managers rich. (laughs) Or perhaps they've got a very big tilt, a big factor tilt towards a particular style of investing, which they don't realise. For example, they could have a tilt towards growth or whatever's done well recently. And that's fine, you know, as long as they understand they've got the tilt in the first place. So they'll say, look, the US has been doing very well, so I've got just an S&P 500 fund and that's all I've got. And you think, well, that's done well recently over the last decade, but it doesn't necessarily mean it's going to outperform over the next decade. Yeah. And the interesting one I see from UK investors, and I'm, I don't host power hours with people, I just mean online. I'd be way too sarcastic in power hours, I think. <laughs> <laughs> but I see a lot of people talking about their dividend portfolios. And then if you break that down into the sector weights, I guess you could say to them, well, so you think financials and energy stocks and whatever else, utilities are going to outperform going forward. They're going to do much better than the tech stocks, right? That's what you think, isn't it? (laughs) And that's the problem. Often if you have a dividend portfolio, it has a huge sector tilt away from what you'd expect. So you can break it down by sector, you can break it down by country, by currency. There are multiple ways you can do this. 
then just play it back to them and see what they've got. And often that comes up with a shock. That's why I think you have to be so careful as an investor when you stray too far from the sort of vanilla index fund. It's because it's quite hard to express your views unless you really know what you're doing. I think that's true. And I think it's an understanding of why market cap is a good thing. It seems very odd that you buy things in proportion to their size, the size of the market. But in terms of liquidity, that makes a lot of sense because that's the most liquid market. Of course, it weights things which have been successful in the past. But things which have been successful in the past tend to be successful in the future as well, at least for a short period of time. So I think market cap weighting, although you can criticise it, is a reasonable assumption of what should be good if you have a neutral portfolio. And if it's not good enough, if you think, okay, 7%, 8% above inflation per year is not going to do it for me, I'm not going to get to my goals, you probably need to rein back your goals rather than trying to find a way to get to 12 or 13% a year. And that's a difficult conversation to have. And it's one I certainly have had. But really, it's a matter of just being realistic about what markets can do. And what's odd is that dialing up risk doesn't necessarily dial up return. Dialing down risk dials down return, but dialing up risk can also leave you with catastrophic losses, which again is counterintuitive and difficult to explain. And I suppose if people want to take that risk, fine. But I would imagine that some people you speak to are not the sole decision maker here. They're representing their family. Yeah, that's certainly the case. Sometimes it's an awkward conversation because we've got more than one family member on the call. And there have been quite difficult conversations. I won't, I won't say what happened, but a disagreement, put it that way, between two family members about how to proceed. And really, you've just got to find something which is acceptable to all the family members. But the difficulty is that usually one family member is more clued up than the rest. And either the other family members just don't care, they're not interested, and they just left it up to one other person. But then they blame that person when things go wrong without taking any kind of responsibility themselves. So I think the best way to do this is to come up with a joint plan. And that does require education for everyone who's involved. So if you want to have a say, you have to understand. And to understand, you have to educate yourself. And then if we move up the wealth spectrum, what I often get is someone who's been courted by multiple wealth managers. And here we're talking about really top-end wealth managers like the large investment banks. And then the conversation is, look, they're trying to sell me this structured product and it's so complicated. I just nodded through the meeting, but I've got no idea how this leveraged structured credit product is going to help me achieve my goals. And then you sit down with this, you know, 20 page document with derivatives embedded in it. And of course, I love those. I absolutely love them. Yeah, I was going to say, this is your dream power hour. <laughs> oh, I, I get very excited. But my job is to explain it to them and educate them because that's what I do. I educate. So that's what I try to leave them with is an understanding of what the product is and then leave it up to them to decide whether that's appropriate. But usually, if it's difficult to understand, if it requires a lot of maths, it's probably not the right thing. And it probably hides a lot of fees and the complexity. Why are they trying to sell me this product? What do they get out of it? And what do I get out of it? If you understand that, then I think you enter that relationship from a point of clarity. It's an incredible job you have, really, to just talk to all these people, provide a lot of value to them, and hopefully get into the stage where they understand what they're doing and can make informed decisions. I do love it. I really do love it. And of course, information doesn't just flow one way. 
It was interesting. When I was a strategist, it was just the same. You'd kind of fly around the world. You'd end up rolling up outside a client's door in your Mercedes. You'd go in with your slide deck. You'd talk about your stuff. And then you'd start talking. And then the real meeting would begin because they'd ask questions. And they'd also start to say what they thought, which was often much more interesting than what I thought. <laughs> and you'd learn so much from the clients. I was going to say, you must come away from some of these power hours having upskilled your own investing knowledge. Oh, in many cases, that's true. Or they ask a question which makes you think, oh, I've got no idea what the answer is. And I'll be honest, you know, I'll say, you know, I don't really know about that. But I make sure that I go and learn about it. So that's why it actually improves my skills talking to these people and make sure I stay up to date. So what have you learned over this time? How are you approaching these conversations now, a thousand plus people in differently to how you did right at the start? I think I see what goes wrong. I've seen many examples of things which have gone wrong. And I know the kind of behaviour which usually doesn't work. That's why I've plumped for simplicity. You're much more likely to come up with these good outcomes if you can't screw up as easily. So simplicity, I think, is one of the things I've learned. But also that one size doesn't fit all. Many people have really interesting portfolios, which are quite odd when you first see it, but then they talk through their circumstances and you realise, yeah, this is absolutely perfectly suited to what your goals are. And they've done a great job of constructing it. So, you know, I think one size fits all just isn't true. I think people are varied and their portfolios should be varied too. Now, we've been talking about coaching sessions with me, one-to-one sessions. If you want to learn more about those, simply go to our website, pensioncraft.com, and look for the word coaching. Okay, today's dumb question of the week is why is it so hard to talk about money? If you look at the stats, Americans seem to be more comfortable talking with their friends about marriage problems, addictions, mental health, race, sex, politics, almost anything you can think of, rather than their money, their salary, their retirement savings, their debt. All these things rank far higher on the taboo subject list. For example, almost 40% of Americans say that discussing their salary is off the table. I think one of the reasons is that people don't want to be judged. And if you tell someone how much you earn, immediately they'll be comparing it with how much they earn. And it's not something which is subjective. It's something which is objective. It is a number. And either way, it's going to be unpleasant. If you've got considerably more than other people, you might feel guilty. And if you've got considerably less, you're going to feel jealous. So I think (laughs) that's the problem. And it's the fact that money is fungible, right? The numbers are directly comparable. Whereas if we're thinking of some other kind of comparison, whether it's attractiveness or fashion or something like that, it's very subjective, right? One person might be amazingly beautiful to you, but someone else might not like them. But money is money. And we all want the number to be higher, pretty much. I think that's true. And we always compare ourselves with other people. It's just a natural thing to do. I think the taboo around discussing money has also been reinforced by employers, right? They really don't want you telling your co-workers what your salary is and all discussing amongst yourselves because they lose the informational advantage then when it comes to negotiating pay rises. Yeah, so even in the workplace, it's something which you can't really discuss. And maybe that kind of bleeds over into your normal life. I think the other problem is that if you do discuss it, then 
What's the benefit of discussing it? Are you going to get any special insights from the other person? And I think that's one of the problems. I think a lot of people assume that they know more than other people. Well, I think it's true that comparison is the thief of joy, as we've all heard it said. So if you discuss salaries and you earn less, it will be gutting (laughs) and you will feel annoyed if you're at the sort of same level as someone else and they're paid an extra 20 grand. But I think there is a big advantage to that. You want to know that you're underpaid if you're underpaid. Maybe you can start looking for another job. Maybe you can have some leverage when you're talking about pay rises with your employer. Yeah, you can see why companies like Glassdoor, which talk about salaries and do let people see what other people earn in the same job, why they're so popular. They kind of fill this social need to compare yourself against your peers. But the danger is it really does kind of put a value on us as people, right? Even if it shouldn't, it does. And you see the same with a gift, right? If you give someone a gift, you wouldn't ask, well, how much did it cost you? (laughs) Because it then seems like if it was inexpensive, it's not so meaningful, even though it should kind of be irrelevant. I guess the implication of this dumb question is, does our reluctance to discuss money openly hurt us? As a society, are we worse off for it in the same way that maybe we were worse off for not discussing mental health more openly up until recently? I always come down on the side of transparency. I always think it's best to be open about stuff. And unless you feel it's going to hurt the other person's feelings, if someone asks me, you know, I'll tell them. But you're always thinking, why is this person asking me? You know, what, why does it matter to them? I think certainly in an employment context, since unions have been neutered, it would be better if there was more transparency. But in terms of our personal wealth, I certainly think it would be better if more people were clued up about investing in the UK. Like there would be huge benefit for that if people understood what to do with their money for the long term. But when it comes to your personal finances, I'm less sure that it's good to be super transparent publicly just because it changes how people see you maybe. Let's say you've got a lot of wealth and you talk about that, you're probably going to start attracting some people who are into you for your money, (laughs) the gold digger phenomenon, and also people who want to take your money from you, either in a legal way, (laughs) financial advisors (laughs) with big fees, or in an illegal way with all the scam artists we see around. And you probably don't want that attention. Yeah, my mum used to have an office, a secretarial office in the Hilton Hotel in Tehran when I was a kid. And she had all sorts of guests come and ask for things to be typed up. And, you know, they're often quite rich and famous people. And one guy, he was dressed like a tramp almost. You know, he came into the office. He wasn't very flashy at all. And he was actually a member of an aristocratic family and very, very wealthy, but so understated and modest, a lovely guy. Don't you see that distinction, though, between old money and new money? If you meet someone who's from really old money, they're typically in like tatty clothes <laughs> driving a banger, <laughs> whereas new money's got the sort of Lamborghini parked on the corner and the Rolex is on their wrist. Funnily enough, a lot of the people I speak to, they are very wealthy and they are very understated. So I think it's more common than people think, mostly because people realise that a flashy lifestyle doesn't make you happy. It just causes resentment. And it's the fastest way to lose your money. <laughs> Thank you for joining us for many happy returns. Do send us your questions, no matter how dumb, at the email address mhr at pensioncraft.com. And do remember to check out pensioncraft.com for all the information about our membership and investment coaching options. Many Happy Returns is a Pension Craft production, co-hosted and executive produced by Romin Nakiza and Michael Pugh. 
This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes and is not financial advice. We do not provide recommendations or endorse any decision to buy, sell or hold any security. We cannot be held responsible for any actions listeners may take and investors are encouraged to seek independent financial advice.